Welcome to the Unstoppable Freedom Podcast. I'm Jimmy Page. The Unstoppable Freedom Alliance is activating a movement of millions of everyday Americans with a passion for freedom. And we're committed to creating the greatest possible future for America, not only for us, but for generations to come. And even though freedom is under attack everywhere in American life and even around the world, here's the good news. There's a growing movement across the country to do something, to stand up, to fight back and defend our liberties. Well, today, we're joined by someone who is doing just that. Our guest today is Tyson Langhofer, one of the principal attorneys with the Alliance Defending Freedom. Tyson, welcome to the Unstoppable Freedom Podcast. Thanks for, so much for having me, Jimmy. I'm really glad to be here. You bet. Hey, as we get started, can you tell our audience a little more about your journey and what you do now with the Alliance Defending Freedom? Absolutely. So from a young age, I knew I wanted to be an attorney, and I always had a love for America and for its freedom and for the, 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 just the liberty that it provides and the uniqueness that it has in the world, in world history. And so I knew I always wanted to do constitutional um, law and, and litigation. And so I went to Regent University for law school. I worked for the American Center for Law and Justice while I was there. Um, and then, you know, after law school, um, God kind of shifted a little bit. I, I didn't go into that directly. I actually went back to Kansas and went into private practice for uh, 16 years. And I was a partner at a large law firm um, out of Wichita, Kansas, and did commercial litigation for about 16 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and then about six years ago, um, ADF called and, and said they had a position for me. And so my wife and I prayed about it. Uh, it was a big decision. I had five kids at the time. My oldest was going to be a senior in, in school. She had no desire to move uh, from Kansas. I've got five siblings there. But God made it very clear to me uh, that this is what I want you to do. And this is what I have for you. And so my wife agreed and, and we moved to Arizona um, about six and a half years ago. And then three years ago, moved to Northern Virginia. So I've been with ADF since and, and I'm the director of the Center for Academic Freedom with ADF. Oh, it's fantastic. Well, it's funny. We were laughing a little bit, you know, before we started about my love-hate relationship with law. And, and you kind of said from the outset, you said, I always loved law. Listen, I don't believe that. I don't think that's true or accurate. So uh, <laughs> you must have a little bit of love-hate relationship for the law. Well, it's, it's not the law itself. It's the practice of law. I, I love law because it provides, right. you know, the, the rule of law is what differentiates us from mm. every country. When you look at the history of, of, of the world, the history of the world has been um, governed by Rex Lex, the king is law. And mm. what America did was they shifted that and they said, Lex Rex, the law is king. Nobody mm. is above the law. And, yeah. and so um, we know that law is good, but the yes. practice of law can be uh, very difficult and, and very challenging, but, yeah. but it's good because it provides us order and the ability to order our lives around a shared, um, shared goals and values. I love that. I think that's a great distinction, right? As frustrating as the law can be, it is that kind of that bedrock foundation of free societies, especially here in America. And, you know, I was thinking back, we've had, we've had some history together over the last dozen or so years in the arena of defending religious freedom. Uh, you know, as I've worked for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes for many years, I remember the first interactions we had were uh, when I was in the Mid-Atlantic region in that D.C., Baltimore area, and we were experiencing opposition to our presence on high school and college campuses. Do you remember that? I do remember that. 
Yeah, and you were incredibly instrumental, I think, in, in helping us to go back to the Constitution and defend our rights. I remember the organization was Freedom From Religion. I believe it was Freedom From Religion Foundation, which is a really interesting name. And here we we were a Christian organization and, and we're, we're experiencing this opposition. Do you remember those days? I do remember those days. And, and I still, uh, you know, do a lot of work with um, FCA and its groups yeah. across the camp, uh, across the country, uh, because they're, you know, all they're trying to do, these students on these public school campuses are just trying to live consistently with their faith and to live and, and experience the rights that all secular students have. You know, secular students are no different than religious students. They're, they're trying to live according to the dictates of their conscience, and that's all that religious students are doing as well. But unfortunately, what we're seeing is that many um, public officials believe that there's some right that they have or duty to stamp out all religious speech from the public square. And that's not what the First Amendment does. It says that the religious should have the same exact rights as the secular. Um, and so that's, I, that's what we try to do is fight on a, in ADF for the rights of religious people. And, and frankly, which gives the rights to even secular people. Those are the same rights. There's no distinction. Um, both have the right to go into the public square and advocate for what they think is best for society. I love that. And that's a super succinct uh, description of that, right? And I remember at the moments when, when I needed your help, when FCA engaged with you in a significant way. And, and by the way, I know that that relationship has grown over time because the, uh, the opposition to religious freedom as protected by our Constitution, by the Bill of Rights, is growing for sure. But it wasn't until my wife and I, uh, we, we were longtime supporters of ADF, but it wasn't until we experienced the opposition personally uh, for the battle for religious freedom and the need to fight this, that it really kind of hit home for us. Yeah, you know, Jimmy, your experience is absolutely the experience that many people across the country have had in the last two years. What my experience had been was when I would talk to people, they say, oh, that's interesting. You've got that client doing that or that client mm -hmm. did that. But they didn't really understand that it was going to impact them. What they have seen with COVID when their church gets shut down, yes. what they have seen with you know, uh, various mandates, what they have seen with CRT, critical race theory, and with gender identity theory is it's now coming home to roost. They're feeling the impact of that. And they're saying, oh, I understand now. I understand why these principles from for, that you're fighting for, for a person that's across the country that may be in a different situation, but that principle to protect my freedom also applies to me. I understand the importance of that. Boy, that's an important point, you know, and I think that's the thing that's that got me into the fight for freedom was that now we, we see these infringements all around the country and we can no longer say, well, that's that's just happening there or that's one incident or not. Now it's everywhere. It's affecting all of us. You know, the the mandates where, you know, that are infringing upon our right for religious exemption or medical exemptions are really infringing in a number of directions. But I know that you're in particular you are focused on educational freedom, this academic freedom. What are some of the most uh, important battlegrounds right now as you defend freedom? I know that you're involved pretty heavily with the Loudoun County situation. Tell us, tell us a bit about that. Sure. You know, um, there's a, there are a number of threats that um, parents, students, and teachers are facing in our public schools. Um, and Loudoun County um, kind of embodies a lot of those uh, battles. And so essentially what happened was last May, 
um, earlier this year or earlier last year, um, uh, Loudoun County was considering a policy which would force all teachers and students um, to refer to any student with any name that the student chooses and any pronoun that the student chooses, even if that pronoun is different than their biological sex. A longtime PE teacher in Loudoun County, Tanner Cross, went to the school board meeting, to a public meeting where they asked for comment on this public policy. Mm. And he said, look, I, I don't uh, think this is a good policy. And I, I don't think you should force all teachers to do this because it would be lying to students and mm. it'd be harmful to students. He went to school the next day, had a great day with his students, played T-ball, had no problems. Mm. That night he received a call from HR, you need to come to our office. He went in the next morning, they immediately placed him on suspended leave because they said he had disturbed, he had been a disturbance to the school. Uh, huh. There had been no disturbance to the school. Um, five parents had emailed the school and said, I don't like what he said. That was the disturbance. And yet they suspended him, a public employee who spoke at a public meeting uh, where they invited public comment, they suspended him. So we immediately sent a letter to them and said, you need to reinstate him. That's a violation of his first amendment rights. Uh, they refused. So we filed a lawsuit the next Tuesday had a hearing on Friday, and thankfully, the judge granted an injunction and ordered the school to reinstate Tanner um, mm. because they had violated his free speech rights uh, by punishing him for simply expressing an opinion on a policy. Now, mm. that, fortunately, he so he was reinstated, um, but that August, a couple months later, the school board, ignoring all kinds of parents and teachers that have come in and said, this is not a good policy, this is be harmful to our school district and it's unnecessary, they adopted that policy. Um, so we have uh, amended the lawsuit to add two different, two additional teachers, Monica Gill and Kimberly Wright, who are challenging this policy, which essentially says that all teachers have to um, refer to any student using any name and pronoun the student chooses. Now this goes from kindergarten all the way up to senior. And there is no permission required from, from parents no um, diagnosis of gender dysphoria that's required, just simply upon the demand of a student. Um, and I think, Jimmy, one thing that's really important to understand is these are longtime teachers, very respected in their communities, mm. very respected by their students, and all they're they are agreeing to refer to any student by any name the student wants. Whatever name you want, that's fine. But all I'm asking is don't force me to say something that I think is untrue and that will be harmful to you by using a pronoun uh, that is not consistent with your biological sex. In other words, refer Amazing. to a boy as a girl or a girl as a boy. Um, and policy also requires the teachers to lie to parents. If they don't think the parents support this transition, they must lie to them and use their actual name and pronoun um, with the parents, but something different at school. And that's very harmful to parents and to students. Unbelievable. I mean, you've touched on so many things there that I want to unpack a little bit. First of all, I, I was thinking as you were saying that so many different freedoms are wrapped up into this academic freedom issue, right? I mean, we've got an infringement on free speech where someone just because they're an employee of a school district means that they can't speak openly and freely at a, at a school board meeting. That just doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't seem right in any respect. Um, and then you've got the religious freedom. You've got there's just so many issues that are all kind of intertwined into that. But one of the things that strikes me the most is this kind of assault on parents, right? The role of parents 
in the education of their kids. And one of the things we've done is we, uh, as Unstoppable Freedom, we've decided to reestablish the parent as the primary educator of their kids. And we've written a, a parental bill, bill of rights, which gives people in communities all across the country talking points, very specific things to reassert the parent's role in the education of their kids. How important is, is it that a parent or a teacher or a, even a student has that right to express uh, openly their free speech rights in that environment? It is absolutely fundamental. Every other right that we have is dependent upon our right to speak things that are consistent with our conscience. And, and this is what everybody needs to understand, Jimmy, is that what we say, when you look across the country at, or across the world at other countries, fundamental freedoms travel together. You never, ever see a country that protects freedom of speech, but not freedom of religion or freedom of religion, but not freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of association. They, they don't, you, you'll never see a country that protects one that doesn't protect the other. So when you take away speech, everything else falls with it. Mm. And, and you think about this, you know, fundamentally, we, we've taken it so for granted, we have to rebuild the arguments for it in a lot of ways. Um, but if a parent can't go in to a teacher and say, you know what, my student is struggling right now, um, and we, have, we are obtaining counseling with them on this, and we're taking these efforts, but we don't think that this is the best route for them. And yet that teacher says, well, we disagree and we're going to do something different. Um, that's an unbelievable uh, infringement upon these rights. And I'll give you an example. We, we currently represent in Wisconsin a, a, uh, a family. They have a 12-year-old student in the Kettle Moraine School District. And this student was experiencing increased anxiety and depression. She went to a counseling program, which ended up pushing her to say that she wanted to be a boy. Her parents wanted to give her time to work out her anxiety and depression. She had been diagnosed with anxiety and depression. And the parents said, we want to help her work through that because we think that's contributing to her belief or her desire to be a boy. The school officials said that no matter the parents' wishes, they would refer to the couple's daughter by whatever name and pronoun she chose. Now, that's an unbelievable thing to think about. You know, this major decision about a child's mental health these school officials say, we are going to make that decision over and against the parent's knowledge and consent. And that this policy overrides the role of parents in raising their own children. And frankly, it overrides this, it ignores their concerns for their children. Um, and uh, and that's, that's a very, very concerning. And we're seeing that across the country. That's in Loudoun County. We're seeing it in Wisconsin. We're seeing it in Kansas. I just talked to some people today in New Mexico all these school districts are considering these types of policies, which essentially um, say, yeah, we know you, we can't even give your child an aspirin, but we can socially transition your child, which puts them on the path to hormone blockers, to uh, cross-sex hormones, and then on to surgery. It's like, I'm, I'm listening to you and part of me, I know, I know a bunch, but part of me is listening in disbelief because as a parent, of four kids that have gone through the educational system, I was incredibly active in that process, right? I viewed, I viewed that partnership as a partnership in education, not in the raising of my kids. I never once thought, oh, this school 
these school administrators, teachers, et cetera, are actually helping me to raise my kids. Um, that's the parent's job. You know, that's the parent's job. And part of what we're trying to assert and reassert is that parents are the primary educators of our children, that that, that rests primarily <clears throat> in the hands and the hearts of the parents. Parents have a sacred duty, a responsibility to raise and educate our children in a manner from a faith perspective that honors God, values the family, instills faith, character, virtue, and most importantly, equips and prepares them to be productive, honorable citizens of the United States. I mean, that's the parent's role. We entrust our children to educators, teachers, most of whom are amazing people. But when an, organi when a, an administration or a school district decides to become the, the decision maker on medical decisions, on mental health decisions, on values, uh, on religious beliefs even, that's when it gets really tricky, doesn't it? And, and really, it makes you want to do something, doesn't it? Oh, it absolutely does. And, and frankly, we're seeing <clears throat> that happen across the country, including here in Loudoun County. Um, and, and one of the things that's really cool, Jimmy, and should be encouraging to your listeners and to organizations like yourselves is that Tanner's stand, you know, Tanner, Tanner, the thing I love about this and, and how I love how God uses people, Tanner didn't go out to start a movement. Tanner went out and said, as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord first. We're going to speak truth first. Yes. And that's all he did. But because of that, it started a movement in Loudoun and other parents got involved, other teachers got involved. And then they started speaking out. And then the governor, uh, the governor's race started taking notice. And then the governor, um, you know, the governor's race and the AG's race, they were all determined by educational issues. Every outlet across the country said this was determined by parents and teachers getting out and saying, we don't like the direction of our schools. And that was because one man said, I'm not going to defy, I'm not going to defy the, the dictates of my conscience. Um, and, and because of that, that started a bunch of dominoes falling and, and, and we see that it can make a difference. Mm. And so um, yeah. I, I think what's, what's really important here, Jimmy, you, when you go back to the rights of parents and, and the role of schools, mm. schools are educational. Yes. But what we are seeing is they're becoming ideological, mm. not educational. They are adopting ideology over education and they're prioritizing that. And I'll give you an example. Mm. All of the all of the science on gender dysphoria shows that from 80 to 95 percent of children that experience gender dysphoria prior to puberty will choose their biological sex if they are not socially transitioned. Mm. This is undisputable science, undisputable. Yet, if you social transition, almost none of them ever choose their biological sex. They almost all can move on to puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and then surgery. Mm. That is a, a huge, huge medical decision that is being imposed upon students who don't have the ability to make these decisions yes. to understand that if you go to cross-sex hormones, you will be sterile. You will lose mm. your ability to reproduce. And yet they're, they are engaging in social transition without any medical diagnosis and against scientific knowledge. Yeah. So that's when we know that they are engaging in ideology over education. They mm. are dismissing the concerns of parents and medical professionals, and they're just plunging headlong into this 
experiment on the youngest and most vulnerable of our children. Because these children with gender dysphoria have other diagnoses. They're almost always depressed and anxious and seeking treatment for other things. And instead of exploring those and helping those, they're rushing into the social transition. And so that's what the parents are getting um, angry about. They're yeah. saying, look, we pay you to teach yes. the things that they need to know in order to get a good job and to you know, go out into, into the workforce, yes. not to adopt a specific ideology. Yeah, but you, there's so much in there to unpack. I mean, one of the things that I thought of right away when you said that is a lot of times we feel powerless, you know, individually. We feel like the things that we're facing, I think that we feel isolated. We feel like there's no one else that feels like we do or believes that we do. And therefore, we feel powerless as parents, as people in our communities, even as teachers. And that's a, I do want you to comment on that a little bit. But as parents, what we're discovering is one person speaking boldly, courageously, speaking the truth at a board meeting, at a school board meeting, in defiance of uh, this re-engineering, this ideological re-engineering, usurping the power of parents to make decisions, educational decisions for their kids. One single person speaking up can become a movement. It can affect change. It can affect a political process, an election, because all of a sudden people feel like I'm not alone. I am not in this by myself. And all if you can rally enough good people around those issues, and all of a sudden they start showing up at school board meetings and intelligently articulating what they believe, all of a sudden change can come. That grassroots thing is important, right? But it really probably wouldn't have happened until they got rep representation as well through ADF, through you, through what you're doing through uh, Alliance Defending Freedom. Is that right? Well, I, it absolutely is very helpful for them to understand that I'm not alone, that yes. there is organizations out there that will assist them. And, and one of the things I love about ADF is that we, you know, we provide all of our legal, you know, assistance pro bono. Nobody, you don't pay a dime. Um, and not only do we advocate for you in the courts, but we advocate for you in the public sphere. Because one, what we understand about this, Jimmy, is that you know, we can win in the courts and we are consistently winning. Another encouraging fact is that in my area, we win 91% of our cases. Wow. Um, that's very encouraging because even though the, the culture is moving away from us, the law is still really strong. And mm. so we can win there. If you'll take a stand, we can win. But we also have to win the public. And yes. what we're finding is we need to arm them with information. And so it's what the great thing about organizations like uh, what you're doing, Jimmy, is that you're providing that information yes. so they can go out and intelligently and articulately and with confidence yes. speak the truth. Yes. You know, I love Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the, the brave Russian dissident. Uh, he said that one word of truth shall outweigh the whole world. Mm. And that's so true. When you hear that, yes. when somebody hears that and they see that, they say, that's right. I, I've forgotten. I've been deluded. That's true. And I can stand on truth. Um, and that will then encourage them to go out and courageously stand on their own. We, we say that courage begets courage. Yes. And, and that's what I think individuals see. And they'll say, I want to stand with that person um, yes. as courage. I can stand behind mm -hmm. her. I can stand behind what she said. Yeah. I can tell you this. When, when we worked together in the past on these issues, I have felt... Um, 
I've been I felt incredible courage. I borrowed your courage because you're you're in some ways, Tyson, you're fearless because you do you have a very strong handle on the law, on what's good and right. You have a, a strong handle on truth. You have a strong handle on constitutional, um, you know, precedent and, and our values. So I feel incredible that way. And I also feel that courage when there are other people in it with me. And that's one of the reasons why we're producing these resources. And, and by the way, borrowing resources, promoting ADF resources, because they're so solid. One of the things that we write in our parents' bill of rights is this, that uh, parents have the right to safety for their kids, to an environment free from indoctrination, ideological coercion, political bias, segregation, and discrimination. There's a lot there. But that school environment should be free from those things, right? And you mentioned critical race theory, which is an ideology. It's an indoctrination of sorts. You mentioned the gender issues that we're facing. None of these issues should be promoted through our educational system. We're trusting these educators to take care of our kids. How, you're on the front lines of this. Are these the battle lines that we're facing right now? Absolutely. Um, you know, it is... It's really, really uh, scary just how much um, our system has been hijacked. Uh, and, you know, so I moved to Loudoun County three years ago. We homeschool our kids, but we had been sending them when they high school to, to public schools. And everybody was like, Loudoun County schools are the best in the country. <laughs> everybody told us that. And yet three years later, we find that they are the the the. The, the eye of the storm because parents had just assumed these things. It wasn't like that, that, that these things came in uh, in the last three years. No, they had been there, but they were revealed through a lot of the things that have been happening. And so I think um, what we're finding here is as, this, as parents have delved into this more, they recognize that um, the system has been um, moving more towards ideology um, and not education for quite some time. They just weren't aware of it. And one of the things that, that's, that's really important, Jimmy, to understand is that everybody's like, why? Why? I don't, who's driving this? You know, who's driving this are outside forces. There are billions and billions of dollars that are um, used to develop policies um, on gender identity, on critical race theory, and they are pushing these at, at school, school districts across the country. This isn't an, a, a demand from in, inside, you mm. know, that county suddenly demands this. No, the parents, the teachers, and many administrators don't want it, but it's being pushed by outside individuals who have lots of money, lots mm -hmm. of lobbying, um, effort. And yes. so that's why you're seeing a lot of pushback in, internally because they're like, where's this coming from? Mm -hmm. there, there isn't an internal need or desire for this. This is being pushed by outside individuals trying to push their ideology um, in. Yeah. Uh, that's another big thing in our parents' bill of rights is we have the right to, to eliminate these powerful outside sources, influencing curriculum, books, materials, all of it, because we, we know the, the ideological agenda of these groups, and it's not even hard to figure it out, right? I, my dad was superintendent of schools in, up in Greece, New York, Rochester, New York. So I kind of have an insider's view of what that looks like with the board and the, and the parent involvement. But back then, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, the parental involvement was significant, but it wasn't around the issues we're facing today. It was 
It was about the issues of how do we make our students more competitive? How do we get our uh, how do we give them the skills and educational materials and wisdom necessary to compete in the world? Today, that's almost a secondary issue. And, I, and I'll tell you a quick story. I went to my first, I attended my first board meeting here for a school district here in Colorado. And we, the audience, the members of the audience, which by the way, were parents and citizens, the customer, we were the customer, we're the customer. We, we weren't even addressed. We weren't even acknowledged. Uh, and I was really struck by that because I know my father really valued the opinions and, and the free speech of the community members. He, he weighed it heavily. The second meeting I went to, I had an opportunity to, for community comment, and I spoke during that time. It's amazing to me how dismissive our elected board members are in that process. It's almost like, hey, let's get through the community comment. But what I've discovered is when you come in numbers, that can't be ignored. And people do that with intelligence, respectfulness, but a seriousness. All of a sudden, they, there's nowhere to hide. And we've seen a lot of footage of the Loudoun County public school meetings. Uh, is that an important piece to come in numbers and to be articulate in your, in your presentation? It's, it is vital, Jimmy, absolutely vital um, that when we come and speak on this issue, we're educated. We understand it. It's not sound bites. It's not about um, you know uh, spewing hate against our ideological opponents. Right. It's demonstrating why this this particular policy at issue is going to be harmful to the very people that it's supposed to protect, and that's the students. It's going to be harmful to the parents who are trying to raise those students. It's going to be harmful to the teachers that are trying to convey this information. We need to demonstrate that. And so one of the things, Jimmy, that I think we have gotten away from as a society is we become lazy, we become complacent. We have, we have become assuming that other people will do that work. Yes. That's, not what a, that's not what a constitutional republic is about. Yes. The way that, that our founders were able to craft a document as unbelievable as the Declaration of Independence is they were very well educated on yes. history, on political philosophy, mm. on different governments, and what has worked and what hasn't worked. And so we, as parents, have a duty to educate ourselves on yes. those types of things. What works? What does our Constitution say? Um, what, yeah. you know, and, and then go in and articulate that. Yes. Uh, and, and so I absolutely think that, you know, we have a job to do, and it's not about watching a uh, TV station for five minutes and then going in and, and you know, regurgitating that soundbite, yes. but to educate ourselves and to do it not only one time, but consistently and yes. persistently until they adopt the right policies. Boy, that you hit on so many important things. And that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to energize an intelligent, consistent, showing up grassroots movement, right? And I'll tell you this, since I'm in it, I'm in it neck deep now. Um, it takes a serious commitment to, uh, to care about the kids that are in the system now to show up in a consistent way. It is a, it's a commitment. It's a sacrifice. But what I would say is there is a bro broad and dramatic waking up of citizens all around the country to what's really happening when you drop off your kids at the door of the school 
there's a there's an enlightenment that's happening and and it's disruptive now because now you're faced with the fact that you have to do something about it you can't let what's happening i'll tell you this part of the remote learning was really eye opening me for me tyson this, you'll um, my daughter was a senior in her in uh, her last year of high school and they were at remote learning so they were doing the zoom calls and i had a i was down in our in our little gym in our basement and I was listening in on the class and they were talking about uh, converse, a conversation about topics that could become highly politicized. And my daughter would offer a, a compelling alternative view and to listen to the, the kids in the class ridicule her, the teacher allow it, the teacher jump in on it. Uh, I was stunned and I was feeding her information to share to the class, which was factual, which was uh, you know, values based. Uh, and as she continued to communicate that the ridicule grew. And so I, as a parent, I was enlightened to what's actually happening in, in the classroom to silence free speech, to cancel people's opinion and make people conform to the predominant narrative. I saw it firsthand Tyson. And I think that now is happening more and more. Are you seeing parents waking up in that same way? Absolutely. There are many, many parents that I've talked to um, throughout the country that have, have said the same thing, that they were astonished at um, what was being taught, what was not being taught, yes. how much downtime there was, how much busy work there was, all these types of things. But, you know, the, the biggest uh, thing that they learned, again, was that this was, that the bulk of what was being done was this ideological indoctrination rather than an education. You know, we, we filed just um, right before Christmas a lawsuit in Albemarle County in Virginia against yeah. their critical race theory. And, and because there is a large group of parents that have looked at this and said, this, this ideology is harmful. It, yeah. it, it holds the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and America itself yes. in contempt as irredeemably evil and in need of being overthrown. Mm. That's what critical theory teaches. Um, and, and when you think about the heroes of the civil rights movement that fought against racism by identifying specific laws, policies, and systems yes. that treated people unfairly based on race, right? We have now, we have laws that were adopted to forbid racism and policies and systems. Uh, but what CRT does, it reintroduces racial discrimination and stereotyping into our schools. And it, and it codifies that into policy. Um, yes. And, you know, you and I both know that America has not always lived up to its principles. Right. But the solution is not to teach our children to reject the great American promise of equality for all. Yes. And one, boy, I'm glad you touched on this topic, right? Because my daughter uh, in this high school education, she has said that she, ne she never really considered race and, and that because of this indoctrination that is happening. And by the way, most school districts will claim that they are not using critical race theory, which I find very interesting because I now have sat in on these remote classes and I've heard it firsthand. It's, it's kind of a subtle way to indoctrinate throughout the curriculum now. It's not a class that you're going to take. It's everywhere. It's pervasive. Uh, but what she said to me was, I've never thought more about race than now. And it's not positive. 
It's because people are indoctrinating into this view and it's using racism to eradicate racism. And when I think about Martin Luther King Jr. saying, no, you, you use love to drive out hate. Uh, hate never drives out hate. Racism never eradicates racism. In fact, it's just the opposite. It creates anger and discomfort. And uh, in the end, it, it produces more of its kind. Um, no doubt about it. it. Yeah. yeah. So what do you do? Like, what do you do about that? Are, are, is there a way to uh, use the law to go after an ideological indoctrination like that in our school system? There absolutely is. And that um, it is um, more <laughs> difficult in certain instances because school boards typically have the ability to adopt curriculum. That's their job, right? They right. adopt the curriculum and courts aren't going to want to question that. But here's the problem with CRT and these CRT infused curriculums is it specifically violates Title VI, which says you cannot discriminate based upon race mm. in a educational system which receives federal funds. And that's literally what it does. Many of these, you know, the, the Albemarle policy, you know, it says that that all whites are racist. That's mm. it, it says that explicitly. You 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 have it and you can't do anything about it. Um, it, you know. The and so it, it discriminates on race. It also discriminates based upon sex in violation of Title IX because it says that the patriarchy that males are always the ones that are dominant, and that if you're a male, you need to, you know, you have you have this implicit bias which you mm. can't eradicate. Uh, it says the same thing. It discriminates on religion because it says that Christian, that Christianity is the dominant religion, and therefore it's an oppressor, and everybody else are the oppressed. It labels them as this negative thing, as an oppressor. And, and just by virtue of you being a Christian, you are an oppressor and therefore people should work to overthrow you. Um, that, and, and we, you know, we have teachers, our teachers in the Loudoun County School who say that they have seen students tell other students, you can't speak on this and you can't engage in this topic because of your race. Yeah. That's what it's doing. It's not bringing healing. Mm -hmm. It's helping bridge the divides. Yeah. It's creating more divides yeah. um, because it, it classifies people into race and sex and religion, and it labels them as oppressor or oppressed based upon those. That's what yeah. we work to eradicate. And we have to fight against that. And so as parents, it's scary standing up against that because there are a lot of people who are going to call you names. Yes. But the fact is, you know, we have people like Martin Luther King and all of the civil rights he heroes and leaders that did the same thing. They stood against that. It was their battle back then. This is our battle today. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, it, I've gotten to the point now, and I know there's a lot more people like me that that uh, we know we're not racist. Uh, it doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean that you don't have sin in your life that you've got to deal with and wrestle to the ground. But we know that fundamentally we're not racist. We actually view people through the lens of character, that each person is made in the very image of God. I mean, that's the beauty of faith. That's the beauty of Christian faith, because we actually believe that every single human being is made in the image of God, in the likeness of God. They have the, the capacity to live with potential and purpose. So we value everyone. In fact, you know, one body, many parts. We really believe that everyone forms, uh, you know, their unique function and that everyone's important. And by the way, everyone has intrinsic value because they've been created. 
So to hear the words racist and that, and you know, all that, it, I always, I'm like, I, we don't care anymore. You can say what you want, but I'm fighting for the freedom and opportunity of every single American, regardless of their color, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their nationality. I am fighting for the freedom and opportunity, the equal opportunity uh, for all of them, because we're all equal in the sight of God. Absolutely, Jimmy. That, that's, what I, that's what gives me the courage to go out and speak is the reminder every day that we have the best worldview, the best vision, the best foundation upon which to build the most fairest uh, society that's out there. We yes. have a hopeful vision, which yes. regardless of whether you believe in God, yes. if you have a if you have a foundation of a law that says everybody is valued because they're created in, in the image of God, and therefore they have the freedom to live the life that they desire to live, regardless of whether it's consistent with my beliefs, that's a foundation that's strong that can build a country that's pluralistic and that that rep- that that allows all ideologies, and so. You know, the same thing with gender ideology, you know, we have the best vision of humans is that our identity is in Christ or identity is in knowing that we are created in the image of God. And that's not dependent upon what other people think about me or what I think about myself or what I accomplish. It's it's fixed in that foundation. And so I think that the encouragement to um, people that are listening um, and that are faced with this is we have the best vision. And we go cast that vision because our vision is based upon truth. It's not subjective based upon individuals own view of the world. It's based upon reality and truth. And we need, you know, there's a world out there that's lost and dying and they need to hear the truth and we have the truth. And so it's our duty to go speak it. You know, that's really well said. And, and I, I think this idea that having a positive vision so that we, we consider ourselves the positive voice for freedom. Unstoppable Freedom Alliance is the positive voice for freedom. And the reason that's the case is we believe that a positive vision um, has a shot at at, uh, getting rid of all this negativity and division and putting people into different buckets based upon external characteristics or ideologies. We're like, no, no, no. Out of many, e pluribus unum. Out of many, one. The beauty of America is that we can celebrate our, our differences are fine. Um, but we shouldn't be putting ourselves into these artificial buckets and then training one another to uh, be angry at or hate another group because of some arbitrary external characteristic. Instead, we need to come together around timeless truths and values that form this positive vision. And you, one of the things I'm super concerned about is that we're losing in this, in this medical freedom arena. This is a little off topic from the religious and the academic, but I think it matters because we're losing the ability to articulate a religious exemption, strongly held uh, religious beliefs that, that will prevent us from making certain decisions that are mandated. Why is that important? Why is that religious freedom important and why and how will it affect the other uh, freedoms that we enjoy? Well, let me let me give you an example from a case <laughs> that was very controversial at the time, but back during um, the uh, I think World War II era, their era. I'm sorry, in the during the Vietnam War era, there was um, some Jehovah's Witnesses mm-hmm. that objected to uh, doing the Pledge of Allegiance mm-hmm. because they they believed that they're only going to give allegiance to God, mm-hmm. and so it, this was 
you know, very controversial at the time, but they were forced by the school to do it. And the Supreme Court said, look, promoting patriotism is a good thing. We desire to do that, but we're not going to force people to do that over and above their religious objection. That's what the First Amendment protects. Mm. And so we, we, you know, we're faced with a similar argument today. Promoting the public health is a good thing. Yes. We desire to do that. But different people have different views of what the, that public, promoting the public health is. And secondly, even if it does that, it, in the past, we have allowed for religious objections to people who believe that their religion prevents them from taking actions that would violate those. Even if the bulk of society believes that's best for society. Mm. And so that's what we have to see. And I do agree with you that, yeah. that we as a society are losing our respect for respecting the rights of minority religions who we, but we look at that and say, well, we don't agree with that. We think that's crazy. We think it's different than the science. We think it's different. We think it's harmful. But our America has always protected the minorities. The majority yes. doesn't need to protect itself, right? right. It, the majority has that right because it's the majority. Yes. It's the minority beliefs, the ones that we don't agree with. Those are the ones that we have to protect. And so yes. I think that's what we have to do as a, as a society. We have to get back to that and say, well, the First Amendment was designed to protect the people with beliefs that a lot of people reject. Mm. But we said that we are a big enough society, we're a big enough nation, and that, that because you're creating the image of God, we were going to protect your right, even if we disagree with you. This is really important, right? Because you've touched on another couple of constitutional issues, I think. One is, I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding about America's structure, about our government, that we are a constitutional republic, a nation of laws, a nation of rights primarily, and that the government's role is to protect those rights, right? And that we're, we're not first a democracy. Now we have democratic processes. We have elections that feel democratic, but really our system is a constitutional republic. Why does that matter in this debate? Because you've got this majority rule mentality. Hey, we can force you to do anything now that we're in power. And that doesn't work on either side of the aisle. Why does it matter constitutionally that we're a constitutional republic and not a pure democracy? Well, it matters a lot. And if you read any of the founders, they were more concerned about a pure democracy mm -hmm. than they were about a totalitarian reign because they recognized that the mob, that the majority mm -hmm. could be more oppressive on the minority than what a totalitarian regime could be. And so what, what I think most people, if they actually study you know, humans at all, or they look at history or they look at sociology, they recognize that when mobs get together, when groups of people get together, they can do some pretty horrendous things. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, and, and that's what the, the, the Constitution was designed to protect against. They said, no matter what the majority thinks, we are going to protect these rights. They're right. fundamental rights. They're, they're God-given rights. Yes. They're pre-government. You can't take them away. We're not going to let any majority vote those away. Yeah. And so you think that people have lost that understanding. They think, well, if the majority desires it, well, no, if that's the case, then the civil rights movement wouldn't have come around because right. at the time in certain jurisdictions, the majority didn't want those. Yeah. But, but we said, no, the constitution demands those protections, even if the majority in that jurisdiction don't desire the protections. And so what the civil rights movement showed us is that it led to real improvements for racial minorities because it believed in the Constitution's promise of equality before the law. 
Yes. And America is more equal and just as a result of the very structures that many people are now seeking to demand, dismantle or abolish. Yes. Um, by saying, well, the majority wants this. Well, that's fine, but the majority has wanted some pretty bad things in the past. Mm-hmm. We said, no, we've rejected those and yes. said, we, we believe the Constitution protects everybody and we shouldn't classify people based upon their religious beliefs or their skin color or their sex. I love this. I, I love the fact that I love when people tell me, oh, we're a democracy. And I'm like, I'm confused because we're actually a constitutional republic. And they just look at me like, I don't know what I'm talking about. And I'm like, well, just go back and read some of the founding documents and you'll understand. We do have democratic processes. And by the way, we're, we're gradually undoing this constitutional republic, right? We're gradually giving up these things by uh, eliminating the electoral college, for example. There's, state, there's whole states that are abandoning the electoral college process, which ensures that the minority voices have, have uh, you know, people will hear those voices. But wh- I have a question. Why do you, why are people giving up their freedoms so easily today? Why, why it feels like to me, it's like, oh, this mandate, this requirement, and we're just um, almost willingly giving up essential freedoms for this idea that we're going to be safe and secure. Oh, thank God for the government because they're going to protect me. Why, where did that ideology come from? Why is that so attractive today? Why are people just handing over their freedoms? I think that that, um, des- that desire is innate within humans. So, and again, if you go back and look at the founders, they said, they, they've, they've de- they recognized that when you desire security more than freedom, mm. you, will, you will have neither, right? Um, and, and they, so they recognize that, but today the reason it's more prevalent, I think it goes back to the fact this, this, um, consumerist immediate instant gratification culture that we have, right? It's that it's the fact that we can get whatever we want with one click away on Amazon, we can get that. And what we've, and so I say, well, if it'll protect me for the next 10 days, I'll do that because I worry more about that next 10 days rather than I worry about my children's freedom yeah. in the next generation. Yeah. And I think previous generations, they had a lot harder than us. They had to fight in world wars. They had to travel across the country in covered wagons that took, you know, five, six months and they lost, you know, a third of their population just getting there. Right. And they appreciated that more, that this freedom takes work. And yeah. what we are doing is we're taking that for granted. And we're saying, yeah, it, I am giving up some freedom, but I'm getting some benefit. And they don't recognize the long-term implications of that. And so yeah. I think as a society, we have to stop looking for that instant gratification. We have to stop thinking that the government mm-hmm. can solve something as complex as a pandemic, that they can actually you know, eradicate this just yeah. with some experts up there. Yeah. That's not how it works. That's not what history shows us. Yeah. So we need to recognize that we have been given the responsibility to lead our families, to lead our communities, and that that's best done at the community level and not at the federal level where they're trying to mandate to 330 different people, million different people, yeah. a, you know, a vast, across a vast country. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. And I feel that same way, right? There's the, there is the, this sense that we're taking it for granted. And the moment of truth for me was, was realizing that I'm, I'm in the last quarter of my life. Uh, probably, you know, God willing. 
And, but it's so the fight for freedom for me, yeah, I want to win today. We want to, we want to maintain these constitutionally protected freedoms. Part of what we're trying to do is wake up people's, uh, you know, their attention to the fact that freedom is important, that it matters so that our kids and our kids' kids and generations to come will be able to live in a country that is largely free. And I think that's what's making this so important. Let me ask you this final question for you. We'll wrap it up. We've talked about this. You've mentioned a number of different ways, but if you could succinctly say, how would, what are the best ways that everyday citizens can make a difference, can engage in the process so that we start to make some progress to protect these freedoms for the next generations? I think the most important thing they can do is to educate themselves on what's going on mm. in their local government, in their school systems, in their, their, their community. What's going on? What are the policies being adopted? What are, what's being pushed? Educate themselves on that. And then if they disagree, take some action. Mm. Take some action, whether it be writing a, an op-ed, whether it be going to a public meeting, whether it be going and talking to your, your council, city council person, but get engaged don't sit back and allow our freedoms to be eradicated one by one, you know, and then to look back and to tell your children and your children's children what it was once like, as Ronald Reagan said, to be in America that was free. Um, and, and that's what happens. And one of the things that I think I got kind of frustrated, Jimmy, as I looked at things where I saw what, what America used to be and where it's at. And I kind of got I kind of started feeling sorry for myself and said, yeah. well, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to fight this? And what I re recognized was that every generation has to fight for freedom. Freedom is never the default. It's always has to be fought for every generation. This isn't unique to us. This is every generation. And we need to be, make sure that we don't fall asleep on our watch. We have to fight to retain these freedoms that our fathers and our grandfathers um, fought for um, and have continued to fight for. That's our duty. And that's what motivates me and gets me up out of bed every morning uh, to make sure that I don't fall down on my watch. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. I've, I've had the opportunity firsthand to, you know, kind of link arms with you over many, many years and watch the victories, uh, get the wins. And I, we're super thankful for what you do. We're super thankful for what Alliance Defending Freedom and the other organizations, legal organizations are doing. Thanks for investing so much time in us today, Tyson. God bless you, my friend, and uh, continued success as we defend freedom. Uh, you as well, Jimmy. Thanks for the time here. Thanks for what you're doing. What you're doing um, is, is so important and can make a difference. And I'm, I look forward to, to partnering with you in the future as we go, yeah. as we go forward on our different ways. You bet, my friend. God bless you, buddy. Take care.